Hello everybody, it's Martin Kiernan here and welcome to this episode of Infection Control Matters. This is another episode in which Brett, Phil and I gather opinions from others working in infection prevention and control around the world to see what they feel about current transmission paradigms. I do apologise in advance that the sound quality may not be always that brilliant, but we managed to speak to many of these people at things like conferences and so there is a bit of background noise which we've done our best with. Anyway, without further ado, let's hear what people have to say. Hi there, it's Phil Russo here. I'm joined today by Professor Rhonda Stewart. Rhonda is the Director of the Southeast Public Health Unit from Manage Health in uh, Victoria, Australia. So welcome, Rhonda. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Rhonda, just uh, we're here to chat about the um, the paradigms of the terminology that we're using. So I just wanted to throw you a question and um, and get your thoughts. So with the current contact droplet airborne transmission terminology and the way we use it, do you think it needs to change? And if you do think it needs to change, what ideas do you have that might make it work better? It's a very big question um, that we're asking here. I think we've learnt a lot in the last two and a half years with COVID and we all know where we started with this new virus we thought at the beginning couldn't transfer very easily, then we thought it could transfer quite easily, and then we changed from surgical masks to N95. And really, I think we've learned a lot about the main risks for acquiring, well, certainly coronaviruses, um, and whether we should be thinking about other viruses, other respiratory viruses in the same way. Um, and we are uh, really, as we've gone up and down with the waves health services have also gone up and down with their PPE recommendations. I think um, staff are getting exhausted by the changes we keep throwing at them um, as we learn more, but also as we find risk in the community increases and then decreases as we go through the waves. So I think it is time to re-look at precautions and in particular, you know, defining the difference between droplet precautions and airborne precautions is is a really important step because there are, it's a continuum, isn't it? It's not just one is transmitted by droplet and one is transmitted by airborne. I think it's a continuum. And we've, we've learnt that patients become um, aerosol generators in themselves through COVID, which we didn't even consider before COVID. It was either you were um, using, a, using procedures that caused um, aerosols or you weren't. But now we know patients can do that just by coughing or singing or, or even yelling or talking. So it's a whole lot of things we need to, to think about um, and defining the difference or not difference between droplets and airborne um, transmission I think is a very important one. So do you think the default will be more towards the airborne end of the spectrum than what we know is the droplets end of the spectrum at the moment? I think so. Um, well, at the moment, you know, here in Melbourne, we're, we're getting to the lowest numbers we've had for, you know, 10 months. Um, we're still very keen to keep everybody in N95 masks because we know the risk of COVID is still there, even though the community transmission has decreased. And, um, you know, protecting our healthcare workers and protecting our patients is the most important thing we, you know, as, as uh, infection prevention specialists, it's the most important thing we can do. So, um I can't see us moving away from using N95 masks for quite a while in the hospital setting um, when we're doing patient care, especially as we see um, coronavirus become part of our business as usual. Unless, of course, we get a vaccine that stops us 
um, actually acquiring the disease, it's going to be very difficult to roll back from um, airborne precautions for all care. Do you think, um, you know, that that's probably needs to go hand in hand with the environment that we're in as well? I mean, we can't negatively ventilate every potential respiratory sort negatively, you know, in a negatively ventilated room, every respiratory infection. So uh, is is the level of precautions, do you think, also going to be dependent on the environment that we're working in? Well, of course, yes, very much so. Um, we've learned another thing we really learned about transmission is how much the the impact of the environment is on transmission of coronavirus in particular. And what we've seen is open wards, four bedrooms, sharing toilets, pokey rooms, old infrastructure is just perfect for transmission. Um, and unfortunately, that's not an easy thing to change. I mean, it'd be lovely to have hospitals with single rooms for every patient. We're a long way from that in Melbourne. Um, even with the newer hospitals being built, they're not all single rooms. So we, we have a long way to go. So in um, thinking about our ventilation and uh, air exchanges in the hospital, I think is really important as well as trying to move to more single rooms. Just curious, the new Monash Heart Hospital, what's its accommodation like? So there will be more single rooms, but they'll still, they won't all be single rooms. Um so yes, and then we, you know, we've built a couple of new hospitals recently. Monash Children's still has um, double rooms and a couple of four bedrooms. So, um, and many of these plans were pre-COVID as well. It takes a long time to build a hospital. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, great. Okay, Ed, thanks very much, Rhonda, for your thoughts today. Much appreciated, and um, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Hello everybody, it's Brett Mitchell here and I've got Dr. Callis Maramathu with me who's a specialist in infectious diseases and infection prevention control from Singapore. Thanks for joining us, Callis. Hello, Brett. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure. Um, so, Callis, we're talking about uh, contact droplet and airborne terminology. Do you think um, do you think we need to change these, these terms and paradigm? Yeah, uh, Brett, I think... Yes, uh, change is needed because uh, the classical way of differentiating airborne and droplet transmission has been, you know, proven inaccurate. Uh, from we know this from the recent COVID research, and we in IPC need some uh, catching up to do. You know, also the five micron cutoff we use to differentiate droplet from airborne transmission is not in line with the contemporary aerobiology science. So. There is little reason to categorize modes of transmission into airborne or droplet based on this cutoff and subsequently using it to for IPC uh, precautions. So I think the terminology may need to change as well as the IPC precautions as well. We need to relook at them. Yeah. Look, it's a million dollar question. Any ideas on what this could look like? And uh, have you been thinking about this? I have. I have been thinking about it, and uh, I know there are some uh, some quite some suggestions in the on Twitter Twitter sphere. I mean, for new terminologies, yeah, I don't have a clear answer for sure. Uh, but I would want some simple terminology that best reflects the transmission mechanism and entry points. And for example, respiratory route transmission to reflect airborne and droplet, and contact route transmission for direct physical and environmental contact and mixed rods for where both happens. Hmm. You know, it tells me it's respiratory, so that's what it is. It tells me it's contact and that's what it is. 
So this is something like how I envision it being. So it tells me immediately what is it, how it transmits, and what do I need to do. That sounds like a good idea. Look, um, Callis, really appreciate your time and, and thoughts on this, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome, uh, Brett. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's um, Martin Kiernan here. I'm at the HIS conference in the U- UK. Um, I'm having a chat with Professor Gonzalo Beerman from uh, VCU uh, in the United States. And to be asking them the same question we're asking many other people, which is, do you think the current contact droplet airborne transmission terminology and the way we subsequently plan and deliver infection prevention and control precautions needs to change? And if so, why? Good afternoon. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for uh, including me in your discussion here. So that's a great question. I, I think that the pandemic has actually forced us to kind of reconsider droplet and airborne precautions in such a fashion that it's no longer entirely dichotomous. It used to be like it's either fully droplet or fully airborne. Mm. And I think what we've learned in some nuances that, yes, a disease can be predominantly, for example, a droplet, yet have episodes or moments or situations in which it favors airborne transmission. And that's an important nuance. So, And those, those, those activities which result in airborne transmission don't necessarily have to be the classic airborne generating procedures. Mm. In fact, singing or coughing or speaking in a loud voice can generate, can generate uh, airborne uh, level uh, concerns or, or aerosols, so to speak. So uh, I think that we should be reassessing droplet versus airborne precautions. And with that in mind, we may want to think of common sense approaches of how to best implement that. Yeah, I was going to say, if they need to change, how are we going to do it? And what? And do you have any ideas as to where we should be going with it, really? Well, I think that, first, we, we should be clear if something's fully droplet or just fully airborne. If not, then there could be mostly droplet with concern or risk for airborne. And if that's the nuance, then maybe we should think about two different approaches to it. Number one is in the absence of a shortage of personal protective equipment, now that we've ramped up the availability of masks in almost all healthcare centers, mm-hmm. in, when, in situations in which a patient can transition from droplet to airborne based on things going on in a room or a point of encounter, perhaps we should drop the standard surgical mask and use to use a PFR N95 mask or an airborne level mask. That's one concern. If it, That doesn't necessarily mean, however, that we have to put patients in a negative pressure room. I think what we've learned from the masks uh, lately is that they're highly effective in protecting the wearer from airborne transmission, even in the absence of negative pressure. Yeah. So I, I think that we should, with that, it would essentially transition us to being more liberal with using N95 masks versus droplet masks, not using them for everyone, but just being more liberal with that. And being clear to our healthcare workers that you know, these diseases, sometimes there are situations where they can transition from droplet to airborne, therefore you should take the appropriate precautions. Okay. Do you think that would be a difficult thing to sell to people? Because you know, if, they, if we're moving to a bit more of a fluid, yeah. bad expression, but you know, uh, so a paradigm really... Are people going to get confused with that, do you think, or can we sell this easily? Uh, it's, it, selling things is never particularly easy. But no. I think we have to discuss, that. first, acknowledge what we know, to acknowledge you know, the nuance in, in this particular discussion, and really, even if, if we have those two components uh, stated, you have to come up with a practical solution. And that practical solution is saying, like, hey, our N95 masks are available. You're fit tested. That's your requirement for, for working in this institution. You should default to that unless we tell you otherwise. Okay. It would be a practical approach. Okay. Well, thanks very much for your time. Thank These you. are very short and sharp. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Pleasure. 
Well, hello everybody. It's uh, Brett Mitchell here. I'm on the sidelines of a conference, so apologies for any background noise. Um, but today I've got uh, Belinda Henderson with me. Uh, hello, Belinda. Hi, Brett. How are you going? Great, thank you. Um, Belinda is a clinical nurse consultant in infection prevention control in Brisbane, in Queensland. And uh, we're talking contact droplet and airborne precautions, of course. So, Belinda, what are your thoughts on this? Do we do we need to fundamentally change this concept of this infection control paradigm, or um, or do we need some tinkering? Or what are, you, what are your thoughts on this um, on this uh, topic? Bit of a controversial topic, isn't it, really, Brett? I suppose if you'd asked me three years ago, I said no, it's all good as it is. But if you ask me today, I'll say yeah, absolutely, we need to tinker with it. I think contact's fine. I'm not concerned about contact precautions at all. Although I would really like to promote that we remove gloves for mm. contact precautions and just use gloves in line with standard precautions to ensure that we're encouraging good hand hygiene habits because we know wearing of gloves, of course, doesn't negate the need to clean your hands. But I think in terms of droplet and, um, and airborne, I think we really need to change the terminology and perhaps look at it as just respiratory precautions because in my um, working life, airborne precautions has always been a PFR, an N95 P2 respirator mask, and a negative pressure isolation room and mm. i guess COVID has highlighted to us that that doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily the two need to be together to reduce the incidence of transmission COVID's a difficult one i suppose isn't it because i don't know that it's truly airborne i think there's certainly opportunity for for small aerosol transmission but i don't think it is always transmitted by the airborne route as we would historically say so i would actually promote a different way of thinking and perhaps just have respiratory precautions and then based on the pathogen is your choice not only of mask type whether it be a flat surgical mask or a PFR and also physical location and isolation space for the patient whether it be a single room with the door closed whether it be a you know combined cohorted environment so a four bed bay for example with additional um, engineering devices in play or whether in fact you need a negative pressure isolation room. Mm. I don't know if that's too controversial, but that's where I think we're probably going to head eventually. But I think there's a lot more discussion needing to be had and perhaps not when we're all really emotional and coming out the other side of a pandemic that is still <laughs> Yes, it's still quite raw, isn't it? Um, so I guess you're, what you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, what you're sort of thinking is that a contact and a respiratory-based precaution approach and the respiratory-based precaution approach being stratified by risk um, based on context and perhaps disease and um, individual risk, healthcare worker risk, infrastructure risks, all the other things that might impact on that. Is that kind of where your head's at? Yeah, like that? absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. A number of years ago, um, when I was working in infectious diseases ward, um, we just had contact and respiratory protection. And it was pragmatic for that reason, uh, because it was simple to implement. We didn't have to be thinking too much about what we were using in any given scenario and where an individual might be on that risk spectrum as a patient um, in the course of their disease. Um, and I'm not saying that's that's right, but I'm, I'm just saying that that was a, I guess there's that pragmatic element we also have to consider, isn't it, to, to, to whatever we come up with down the track, um, it's got to be implementable. Absolutely. And I think um, I agree with you. I remember years gone by when that's all we had, but I suppose droplet came in, airborne came in, and it kind of changed that paradigm based on the, the organisms that we were seeing and the pathogens that we were seeing at the time. And I suppose 
you know, SARS-CoV-2 has actually changed our mindset in that space a little bit. Whereas if you think about it in the longevity, it's served us really well with things like varicella and measles and certainly tuberculosis mm. and indeed influenza as well in terms of reducing the risk of transmission, not only to the healthcare worker, but also to co-located patients and patients located in similar zones within a ward environment, for example. But I think, I think it's possible. I think it needs a really strong, robust framework certainly around the decision-making elements because we will have very young infection control leads or, in fact, in some instances, no infection control apart from a couple of days a week for those part-time rural remote-type facilities. So I think it needs to be a really strong framework based on evidence and, as you say, very easy to, to implement. And I think mm. if we get that right and get the debate to the side, then I think we'll really set ourselves up well. And I'm certain, Brett, and you'll know this much better than me, I suppose, but there'll be many people internationally having this same discussion mm. as to mm. what it looks like moving forward for infection prevention and control. And certainly mm. my experience running a very large hospital and, you know, at the height of the last wave of the pandemic, I think we had 168 or 169 inpatients positive with COVID and goodness knows how many patients were classified as close contacts. But, you know, it, it works in terms of not just looking at that straight airborne negative pressure isolation, et cetera, and it protects our healthcare workers and it certainly protects co-located patients. So we know yeah. the principles are there. We just need to work it into a nicer, neater framework, I think. Excellent. Look, always great chatting to you, Belinda. Really appreciate your thoughts on this. Um, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Most welcome, Brett. Thanks so much and hi to all of your listeners. You're doing a great job, you guys. <laughs> thanks so much, Belinda. Well, hello, everybody. It's Martin Keenan here again at the HIS conference, and I bumped into Professor Jan Kloitmans from the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And I'm going to ask him the same question about what do you think about the current contact droplet and airborne transmission paradigm, and do we need to change it? And if so, why? Well, a difficult question, and I don't think I can give an answer. What if you look at the corona pandemic at the start um, I worked in a brand new hospital all single rooms um, but the air refreshing the, the air conditioning of the rooms was interconnected so before we had the first patient our head of technology came in and said uh, if it's airborne we have a problem because <laughs> all these rooms are nicely separated but the air is all connected so well if we have a problem, can you solve it? No, you can't solve it. No, no. Wait and see. And actually, in that hospital, we had hardly any case of nosocomial transmission. We only tested our personal when they were symptomatic. When they were symptomatic and positive, they stayed at home. Asymptomatic uh, or tested negative were allowed to work. And especially in the first wave, without the mask, in the non-COVID wards. Yeah. And really nothing happened. And then that's, as I say, okay, this all simple approach worked in a large hospital with, with hundreds of COVID cases being hospitalized and of course many of our staff must have been positive without having symptoms yeah. and still we didn't see much transmission by taking the basic precautions so therefore I think that um, you don't have to be scared in a normal modern hospital that someone 10 meters away from you is a source of infection I really don't believe that I do believe that airborne transmission plays a role because outside, clearly less transmission than inside. 
However, I don't think that inside you can lower the rate of transmission with the current uh, air conditioning systems. If you go from 4 air change per hour to 10 air change per hour, will that reduce the rate of transmission inside? And that's a question we should answer. Yeah. Um, if we want to uh, make new systems the standard of care. And I don't think that answer has been given. It's very complicated to give it also. Uh, there are some studies I'm aware of where they do these cluster randomized trials where in schools where they put uh, filters, uh, active air filters in, in a, one school and the other is not, and then they look at the rate of transmission. And I think we need that kind of studies to know if we can reduce transmission by just giving more attention to air yeah. conditions. Yeah. I strongly believe that the classical approach to infectious diseases, just clean your hands, uh, if you're symptomatic, test, um, if test is negative, uh, wear, still wear a mask when you come working. That kind of thing, I strongly believe in, but I think that there's insufficient proof that certain air conditions inside have lower risk of infection than others. Okay. I mean, I, I know it can be difficult then to sell a new paradigm to people. If we don't, you think, really need to change because you're, you're comfortable with the droplet, but other people are convinced that air is an issue, how can we bring them back, if you like, to, we do, to feeling... We need good studies. Good studies, I yeah. don't think they are wrong. Yeah. I think I want to see that I'm wrong. Yeah, okay. Before I... And, and these studies can be done, and I think there's also an interest uh, to do that. Yes. I have nothing about, about better air conditions, and I think there are really old buildings, especially in nursing homes in my country, where there's really no refreshment of air besides yeah. opening the windows, and that's bad yeah. for many reasons. Yeah. Um, but I would like to know which system is needed to provide safe circumstances, and I think that it's not you cannot control it by only addressing the air. If people are close together and, 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 and uh, cough in each other's uh, face, you, ca you cannot control that by any system. No. So you should take care of that as well. Right, thank you very much indeed. Thank okay. you for the, your time. I really appreciate you. Thank you very okay. much. Thank, thank you. you. Hi, it's Phil Russo here, and today I'm joined by Associate Professor Caroline Marshall, Caroline is an infectious diseases physician at the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, and she's also head of the Infection Prevention Control Team. So welcome, Caroline. Thank you, Phil. Caroline, I'm just going to kick off, uh, as you know, what we're talking about is um, precautions, and um, we're really interested to hear your thoughts in your key role, particularly with uh, in COVID over the past couple of years. What are your thoughts about the current contact droplet airborne um, transmission terminology and, and how it's delivered and do you think they need to change? Um, the short answer is, uh, what do I think of them? Um, probably not much anymore and do they need to change? Yes. So I think the original definitions were uh, based on some historically, probably historically incorrect designations of droplet versus airborne. And the original document that I can find that coined these terms was in from 1996, a CDC document that was called Guidelines for Isolation Precautions in Hospital Infection Control Advisory Committee. Um, and 
I've, you know, gone back and looked at some of the original articles and I think we probably wouldn't be happy with that sort of uh, definition anymore um, or the evidence anymore for this dichotomy between droplets and airborne transmission. So I think we, you know, we've actually known for quite a while that a lot of respiratory virus infections have been spread via the airborne route. So again, you know, going back even to the 60s, there are articles on airborne transmission of flu and RSV and Coxsackie virus. Um, Certainly when COVID came along, I think there was a lot of resistance to accepting that it was an airborne spread virus. I think most people accept it now, but I think there are still some who are a little bit resistant. so I actually think this dichotomy really no longer stands. And, you know, I'm sure we've all had kind of that practical experience of seeing people in our hospitals, particularly staff, but also other patients catching COVID, clearly even despite wearing surgical masks and, you know, clearly further than 1.5 metres away from other patients. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm happy, very happy to accept that, you know, perhaps we had it wrong. And... I guess, you know, we did concentrate on contact transmission, particularly of COVID. And, you know, I kind of feel like maybe we did that because we didn't really know how it was being spread. And I think, you know, if you can concentrate on contact transmission and contaminated fomites and environment, you know, it gives you something to do. You can actually control what you clean and how often you disinfect your hands. But I think actually teasing out transmission routes is very hard when there's more than one transmission route. So, you know, if there's airborne and possibly droplet and contact transmission to actually tease out which is the most important is is very hard. But I actually think, you know, the aerosol or airborne transmission is the most important. Um, And therefore, I think we should be changing our paradigm of how we look at spread of organisms and I think having some sort of aerosol or respiratory designation that covers um, airborne spread or spread of respiratory pathogens, not just COVID, um, is a better way of looking at it. And I think, you know, we need to do this because I think we need to actually look at the science now and not just sort of rely on kind of old documents and old recommendations that were never really based on um, very much science. So I think we need to actually look at the science. I think it will simplify things for us um, if we do that. Uh, And I think it's really important that we also actually do some really high quality research on transmission routes um, and critically look at transmission routes and how it might work. You know, if you think is contact transmission important in COVID, well, yes, you can find it on all sorts of surfaces and, yes, sometimes it survives for days. But the reality is, we don't actually know the real role that um, contaminated surfaces play in the transmission because it's got to get from the infected person onto the surface, then it's got to survive on the surface, then it has to get back onto someone's hand, um, you know, for example, a staff member's hand, and then it's got to get into someone else's nose or eyes to be transmitted. So I think we just don't really understand a lot of those um, mechanisms of transmission. So I think it's we really need that kind of high quality research to be done as well. That's great, Carol. I love the fact that you went back and had a look at the original um, evidence for for the guidelines. That's that's excellent, um, and it's good to hear that you think there needs to be more research. So, essentially, what we're saying that are you thinking along the lines that 
the default will be what we currently know as airborne precautions as, as for all potential respiratory infections? Yes, I think so. And we're kind of moving towards that at our hospital. You know, we're, I mean, look, at the moment, everyone's wearing N95 masks anyway. But um, even if we pull back on that um, at some stage, don't know when that'll be, I think we would still continue with N95 masks, for, at least for patients with respiratory virus infections. The other thing I think that's really important, though, Phil, is we have to consider um, the built you know, environment as well. So it's not just a matter of wearing N95 masks, but I have think we have to recognise that our hospitals are not really fit for purpose when it comes to airborne transmitted infectious diseases. And I think we need to look at the standards and, you know, be doing more research around that and looking at, you know, if I keep on thinking every time we have a transmission of COVID in a shared room, I keep thinking, imagine if we had patients in single rooms and we had adequate ventilation in our hospital, we probably could eliminate those sorts of transmissions. So I think that's really important as well, sort of doing high quality research around um, ventilation and the built environment. Okay, well, that's great, Caroline. Um, I think we we'll might as well wrap it up there. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. So thank you very much. Thanks, Phil. Well, that's the end of this particular episode of Infection Control Matters. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the different voices and opinions from people around the world. And we'll catch you again on the next episode. 